Manhattan. And uh, most people uh, credited him with the founding of the Methodist Church. He also restored small group meetings. Uh, churches had gotten away from that from the first century. And he started getting people together in small groups. And he had a question that they would ask at the beginning of each small group. And here's the question I'd like you to look at this morning. How is it with your soul? Say that with me. How is it with your soul? That was the first question they would ask in those small groups. And this morning, as we prepare to to go to the tables, and if you're downstairs, there's tables in each corner. Upstairs, there's tables around the corners too. We're, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Normally, we sing during this time. But today we want to do this in silence. One thing the Bible says as we partake of the Lord's Supper is that we are to examine ourselves. And so today we want to give you time to reflect. And I want you to use this question. Simple little question. How is it with your soul? In view of everything that Jesus has done for us. In view of his body and his blood and his sacrifice. How have you responded to him? How is not the outside of you today. How's the inside? How's your soul? Let's pray together. Then let's go to the tables in silence and contemplate this question. God, thank you so much that we can be together this morning as family, welcoming so many new people to come around this table. And Lord, as we come here today, remembering what Jesus did for us, that his body was crucified on that cross, that his blood was shed, Lord, And that he did it by choice for us so that we would not have to die a spiritual death. So that we could live for you forever. God, all we can say is thank you, Lord. And Lord, today we also want to spend some time thinking about our response. Lord, we live in a world where we're so busy on the outside that we can easily neglect the inside. But during these next few moments, as we partake of the bread and the cup, help us to look deep in our soul. And ask the question, how is it with my soul? How's it really going in my relationship with God? Lord, bless this time as we contemplate, Lord. We pray in the name of the one who gave it all for us, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That's a pretty tough question, isn't it? We're not used to answering that question, how is it with your soul? Can you imagine actually going to a small group and that being the first question they asked? And we're trained to ask what we call icebreaker questions, you know. Um, what was your favorite job? What kind of sandwich do you like, you know? I mean, something really easy for people. Can you imagine walking in a living room tonight? And the first question is, how is it with your soul? You know, I really thought about doing that this evening. But I thought, we're not ready for that. I'm not so sure I'm ready for that. You know, I've spent, most of you know, the last month on sabbatical it's been a time for me not to have to preach, to get to sit here and enjoy hearing other people preach and soak it in. It's been a great time for study and reflection. And I, I really thank the elders of this church for allowing me to do that. Um, I really appreciate all of you who walked up to me and asked me when I was getting off vacation. <laughs> that was really nice. All right. It really wasn't a vacation. It was a great time. But in the middle of that, the first book I read was a book that I think Nathan and Wes Corey and some of our staff members had recommended called Replenish, Leading with a Healthy Soul. And the book really was for ministers. And it talked about how many ministers, how we're tempted to look after the outside but not the inside. 
In fact, they gave this really alarming statistic. Maybe it's not alarming to you, but it is to me that only one out of 10 preachers actually will retire in the ministry. The most everybody at some point quits. And the point of the book was, so often that happens because we live in such a public role, I can do my thing, but never replenish my soul. And guys, let's just say this this morning. It's really easy to neglect what goes on on the inside. You see what you say, what is your soul, buddy? It's that immortal part of you. The Bible, it's the contrast between the soul and the body. The soul is that part of you that will last after your body dies. And according to scripture, we'll live in a place of either incredible joy or incredible misery. It's the spiritual part of you. And yet it's so easy to neglect. Now, why is it easy to neglect? Because that's not what you see. I mean, you come to church this morning, everybody can see the exterior of you. Maybe they even sort of judge you on the way you look on the outside, but nobody sees the inside. And so the problem is, what may happen is I pay more attention to what you can see than what you cannot see. In fact, I believe that I could make a really strong argument that even most of us as Christians pay more attention to our bodies than our souls. And let's go with the women just for a second. How much time did you spend this morning getting ready to be here so you look so beautiful like you do this morning, all right? I mean, you might spend an hour, some of you two hours, primping and putting your makeup on, getting your hair right, because you want things to look right on the outside. We pay more attention to our body often. Sometimes I compare, what would you spend in that and what would you spend in Bible study with the Lord? And us men, many of us like to keep our body in shape. Many of us work out. I'm sure before I ever said it, you could tell that I work out. (laughs) Well, it's not a very stringent workout, I hate to admit, all right? But, but often, you know, I think, you know what? I go to the gym three or four times a week, you know. I'm willing to put a solid hour or two in there. And yet, how much am I willing to give for my soul? Because we're much easier thinking about the body than the soul. Even in church, guys, we're much more comfortable speaking the outside than the inside. Now, for instance... You know, we have these prayer request cards in our bulletin every week. They're awesome. And every week, the leadership of this church, if you fill this little deal out, we're going to pray for you. And one of the great blessings we have is that we get to pray for a lot of people that are having physical illness. And I love that. And when I get sick, my name's going to be on the card because I want to be prayed for. But listen to me. In last week's cards, we got 30 cards. 18 of those cards were about physical illness. Six of those cards were just about other life issues and six of the 30 were about spiritual things. Now, here's what I want to say to you today. I want to challenge us to get deeper. How many times you've been to Sunday school class or a a small group and we say, let's take some prayer requests. Guys, I'm all for praying for people that are sick. I think we ought to call prayer meetings to do that. But I'm telling you what I'm ready for. I tell you what I need. I need to be in a setting where we talk about our soul even more than we talk about our body. Where we don't act like it's our body that's the really big thing. The really big thing is our soul. Now, if you don't believe me, listen to Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, here, guys, you're afraid of the wrong thing. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. 
What's Jesus saying? Guys, come on. Your body's a nice thing. It's a big deal, okay? But don't be so worried about that that you neglect what really matters and what's going to last forever. No matter how good care you take care of your bodies, guys, I don't know if you noticed it, but it's going to deteriorate. The death rate is still 100% in America, all right? I mean, it's going to happen. I mean, you know, we all have been so frightened by that gunman who went in that movie theater in Colorado. We think how senseless, how terrible, how sorry, and it is. And we need to be praying for those folks. And we would all be literally up in arms if you had a five-minute warning that someone was coming to your house to do bodily harm to you, your spouse, or your children. Man, we would be loaded, we'd be armed, we'd be ready to go. And that's right. But listen to me. We have a much more evil, destructive force who's entering our house almost every day and we don't have our defenses up. We let him come into our house through the TV, through the internet, you name it, and he's, he's picking people off left and right. Because if we were as concerned about people being picked off spiritually as we are about being picked off physically, I'm telling you, there'll be something different going on when we answer that question, how is our soul? I mean, guys, we're in a war. Look at this passage. We got some in-your-face scripture today. First Peter chapter two, verse eleven. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. What's he saying? This world is not your home. To abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Do you recognize, do I recognize, guys, that there is a war going on against your soul? That Satan is doing everything in his power to somehow destroy the only part of you that will last forever. Guys, here's our problem in our churches. Is we sit around acting like we're in the middle of peacetime when the truth is we're in the middle of a wartime. Now, over the next few weeks... We're going to talk about some of the frontal attacks that Satan brings against us. Today, I don't even want to go there. Today, I want to talk simply about some of the subtle attacks that Satan is using today to destroy us. Even even the things I'm talking about today are not necessarily sinful, but what they can do to us out of order can be very destructive. And understand, as I give you this list, this is a list of things that's talking about preachers and pastors. But as I read over, I thought, you know what? I'm not the only one who needs to hear this message. First thing, first subtle attack, taking notes, write this down, is what I would call image management. You say, what is image management? That's when I am more concerned about the outside than the inside. You see, I want to keep my image up with you. Famous American theologian, Andre Agassi said years ago, image is everything, all right? And many of us live that way, don't we? Because here, here if, if I can keep my image up, if I can come to church and all of you guys think I'm okay, if I can be on that ball team and everybody thinks I'm okay, if I can be, you know, around my family and it all looks right on the outside, then maybe I can manage my image enough to cover up what's really going on in the inside, I mean, this is so crazy. It's like going to the doctor and being diagnosed with a malignant tumor and going, let me go get a facelift. It just makes no sense. And let's be really honest here. 
This is a greater temptation for church-going religious people. Why? Because we sometimes work really hard to appear to be who we're not. We want to come to church, and we don't want people to think we're not spiritual, so we don't ever open our mouth. Everybody at church is fine. We're really, sometimes we're not doing fine inside. And so we got to watch that one. Let me tell you this. Jesus had zero tolerance for image management. You know what Jesus was more comfortable with? He'd be more comfortable with you coming to this church and saying, I'm addicted to pornography. You know, I'm fooling around with my girlfriend. I'm getting drunk. I'm not being right with my wife. He'd be much more comfortable with you coming to church this morning and you saying that than you just sitting there like everything's okay. He had very little tolerance for that. Number two is what I would call ambition ambush. Now, listen to me. God made every one of us to achieve. That's part of the way we're wired. You know, we're miserable. That's why so many people retire and they're miserable because they have nothing to do. They got to find another purpose. God's wired you to be successful. God's wired you to achieve in your business or achieve in your sport. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But here's a a sort of an indirect ambush that ambition begins to take over my life. We we say a person becomes a worker what? A workaholic. Now, how do you become a workaholic? Because my ambition takes over. And so we ask ourselves some questions. Why am I so driven? Why do I put in hours I don't have to put in? Why do I push so hard? Why am I so obsessed with success? Now, listen to me, guys. Nothing wrong with success until it begins to damage your soul. As one person said, the pathway to external, external success and internal direction may be destruction, may be the same road. Did you get that? The path to external success and internal destruction may be the same road. Why? Because maybe I even find something good. Maybe it's even the ministry, you know? And I'm so pumped up and fired up about that, you know, and obsessed about that, that I neglect my family. I neglect my friends. I even begin to neglect my own soul, my relationship with God. So ambition can come in. Here's another one. Number three, approval addiction. All right. How many of you like people to like you? Raise your hands. Some of you don't care. <laughs> okay. And we all like to be liked. Is there something wrong with that? No. Especially any of us that do anything in public, we normally like people to like us. But if you're not careful, you start enjoying the approval and the applause way too much. And so it changes the filter of your life. So when I'm about to preach something or do something, you're about to go to work, or you're about to be out hanging out with your friends, the question that dominates you because you want their approval, you crave it, you want it so bad, the question that dominates you is what will they think? Uh, you know what? If I, if I come out here, you know, and I won't get drunk with them, what will they think? If I come out here, you know, and I don't get stuck in the materialistic, greedy world we live in, what are my friends going to think? If I take a stand about things spiritually, what are, the, what are people going to think? And so it begins to mess us up because I begin to want your approval more than I want God's approval. I read this story about this woman. She plays in the Boston Orchestra. And uh, she was really good at her instrument. And one day, um, a reporter asked her, how does it feel when one night you receive the applause of the crowd because of your performance, 
And the next day you open the newspaper and you receive the criticism of the paper. They just lambast you. I loved her answer. I've learned to not pay attention to the applause of the crowd or the disappointment or disapproval of the critics. You see, the only one I need approval from is my conductor. That's who I need approval from. Guys, you are going to be so free in life to take care of your inside. When you don't listen too much to the applause or too much to the criticism, you simply are focused on, God, what do you think about this? Not what do they think about it. Not whether they're going to like me or not. But God, what do you think about it? All right, number four. Here's a big one. Isolation trap. We begin to be isolated from people. Did you know this? God created you to live in community. God created you to need relationships, especially spiritually. If God didn't think we needed that, he would have never started the church. Because many of us have been hurt in church. Church has not always been the best experience of our life. But God thought it was important enough for us to have relationship. He says, I'm going to put you in this place with all these imperfect people so that you've got some people that are going to help you. Now, you know what I read in this book? 70% of preachers do not have friends. Real friends. I thank God that's not true in my life. But God, for so many of us, our, in our busyness, our relationships suffer. It is dangerous spiritually. Because you know what? Sometimes I get blinded to my own faults. You know, I, mean, I just don't see them. I don't see how I come across. I don't see, I shouldn't have said that. And, and what we all need, which is a great gift, is someone close enough to us that is the wise man says, you can, they can rebuke you. They can say, okay, buddy, what you did the other day didn't look like Jesus. Do you have that friend? You see, what Satan wants to do is he wants to isolate you. He wants to take you out on your own. You say, man, I'm living for God. You know, I don't need anybody. I'm strong enough. That's the manly thing to say. But you know what Satan says is you are a fool and I will pick you off because I got the power to do that. So isolation is a very dangerous thing. Let me give you another one. How about this one? Technology saturation. Now, let's say this. There are incredible benefits to technology. We've got a lot of college students here, and you understand it a whole lot better than I do. I mean, you know that at your fingertips, you can do a research paper. You can look up about almost anybody on the face of the earth. I mean, you've got incredible power to communicate, to learn. Technology has incredible blessings, but it isn't meant to dominate our life. It has great benefits, but it also has great dangers. Because it can take over. Before long, I'm, I'm wired all day long. i got my cell phone. I'm on Facebook. I've got email. It's all day long that somehow I'm saturated by this technology. How many of you have iPhones? You know, there, there are over 250,000 applications of iPhone. I mean, you, you can just be dominated in your life by that. And here's what really, really bothers me, and this is a little bit of a generational thing, is that you guys would rather type than talk. You know what I'm talking about? Now, let me say, first of all, I'm starting to get it, all right? I've learned to text. It's a wonderful thing. 
And when it comes to information, you know, I'm going to meet you here. We'll meet at this time. We'll do this. I'm real quick information. I think it's a blessing. It's much more efficient than talking. But listen to me. When it comes to relationships, it's a pitiful substitute. You don't see someone's face. You don't hear their voice inflections. You can't really hear what's going on with them. And what's happening on college campuses across America is they're saying that college kids are getting separated, isolated by their technology, and they're hardly ever out actually making a good friendship. And that's dangerous. And we're not even talking about the dangers right now of Internet pornography, which is the number one moneymaker on the Internet. We're just talking about at times we are so connected to the Internet, we are not connected to people and to God. Then number six, and this may be the big one for most of us. I I want to call this one a stuck accelerator. Anybody just feel like you're addicted to speed? I'm not talking about the drug speed. I'm just talking about addicted to speed. You got to work fast, practice fast, play fast, talk fast. You even walk fast. Any people in there walk fast? I drive my my wife crazy because I am always a man on a mission, man. I got to get there. I got to get it done. And I am driven. And so I'm always about five or ten feet in front of her. And she's always saying, could you wait on me a minute? Anybody else have that problem? Okay. Is it your problem or your husband's problem? So you're going to confess his sin for us this morning. Okay. That was very nice for for you, Sid, wasn't it? Okay. We, we, We have that problem. And guys, here's what what Satan has done in our culture is he's made us busier and busier and busier. You know what I'm saying? I always like that old test that John Ortberg gave in his book, you know, The Life You've Always Wanted. He says, if you want to find out, he called it hurry sickness. If you have hurry sickness, when you go to the grocery store, you get your little items at the grocery store, you come up to the checkout line. He said, you have hurry sickness if you count the number of people in each aisle to choose which one you're going to. How many of you are sick? All right. Now, second problem is not only do you count the number of people in each aisle, you count the number of items in each basket. How many of you got that one? Okay, we're pretty sick people. Now, it's even worse, he says, that not only do you count the number of people in each aisle and the number of items in each basket, but you also keep up with where you would have been if you got in a different line. How do you do that? All right. Now, guys, that's the way we live. And, and, and guys, everything, the pace of everything in life has increased. Listen to this quotation, pretty convicting. A man named Thomas Kelly wrote, wrote this. We feel honestly the pull of many obligations and try to fulfill them all. That's the big lie. And we are unhappy, uneasy, strained, oppressed, and fearful that we shall be shallow. That's the issue we're talking about today. We're shallow. We have hints there's a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all the hurried existence. A life of unhurried serenity and peace and power. That's a great quotation, isn't it? You know when he wrote that? You know when Thomas Kelly wrote that? 1941. He didn't have a TV He didn't have a billion channels. He didn't have a cell phone. He didn't have internet. And my goodness. And he's saying, we're already getting too busy. And we have. Now, this is is where ancient cultures had an advantage. 
Ancient cultures moved at much slower paces than we do. I, I truly believe, despite the fact that I'm about the worst in everything I'm talking about here, is that God really didn't mean for us to live at this pace. I mean, even in creation, God, on the seventh day, he rests, he takes a Sabbath. In Jewish life, there was, there was built in every week a, 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 one day where you just had to stop. You, you couldn't try to achieve anything on that day. I'm telling you guys, if we're going to be strong Christians, we must restore the idea of Sabbath in our life. Because we're running ourselves crazy. So we need that principle. Now listen to this verse that Jesus said before we get on to our practical points this morning. Jesus put it pretty plain here. I hope you'll listen up closely. What good is it? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What's Jesus saying? What good is it, buddy, if you're the most popular preacher? What good is it for this football team here if you win the national championship? What good is it for you that are in academics if you make straight A's? What good is it for you in business that you make the most money? What good is it that you have the biggest house? What good is it you drive the car you want? What good are any of those things if you lose your soul? What you're saying is, guys, nothing wrong with those things I've just mentioned. Nothing wrong at all. But, but it, there is something wrong when those things become more important to me than what really is going to last forever, which is my soul. So how do, how do we work on this? Let me, let me give you some practical points to close out this morning. Here, here to me is the key to soul survival. Here it is. The key to soul survival is simplicity. Now, here's the problem, though. Simplicity is not simple. Anybody ever notice that? Have you ever had a goal to simplify your life and you never got there? It's not simple at all. All most of us have to do, because it, it doesn't, you don't stumble into simplicity. It, simplicity doesn't just happen. For most of us here, all you need to do is go look at your garage. Right? Have you noticed if you don't pay attention to your garage, what it turns into? How many of you in here can't even get one car in your garage because it's gotten so cluttered? Yeah, that, that's the natural way. If you don't clean it out pretty regularly, if you don't, you know, decide you want to use it, then it's just going to fill up. That's how our life is. It doesn't naturally happen when I'm not watching. So how does it happen? Now here, I want to give you a little formula. Some of you don't even have an outline, but I want you to remember this as we're talking. Here we go. First part of the formula is clarity. All right. You need to sit down and clarify what is really important to you. What do you really want? Let me give you the best question I could give you to help you clarify your life. What do you want people to say at your funeral? I mean, guys, here's the truth. We're all getting there one day. And and when people stand up and speak about you, what would you like said? Went to a beautiful funeral service this week. For a brother here in this church named Bud Owen. He was an awesome, you know, John's dad, Buddy's dad. All three of his boys got up and gave honor to him. Best friend talked about him in the most beautiful way. I love talking to Miss Judy who told me about his transformation over the last 11 years. She made a really riveting statement to me. She said, Bud was baptized years ago, but he didn't become a Christian until he came here 11 years ago to this church. And since then, he has grown so much. And so at his funeral, people were able to get up and say, 
Not that Bud got up in front of the church and did some amazing thing or some great accomplishment, but that he was a servant that represented Jesus Christ in their life and that they would want to imitate his life. My friends, what do you want said at your funeral? And when you do that, a lot of the things that seem important are going to be very important. You're going to clarify that. So I'm going to challenge you at some point this week, get by yourself and spend some time on your own with God going, Lord, how have you gifted me? What do my priorities need to be? How can I have the impact? So first thing is to clarify. So you clarify plus courage. Say that with me. Clarity plus courage. Well, because I can sit down and make that list and I'll, I'll just go back my regular schedule. Because everything else is going to crowd out the spiritual. I mean, just watch it. I mean, TV, internet. I mean, you know, I may want to be close to God, but I got a thousand channels to watch. I can go surfing the internet for hours, meaningless. I can stay on Facebook, you know, and never do anything meaningful, you know. So all those things, though they're not bad, here's what they do. They slowly crowd out what really should happen. So here's what I got to have. I have got to have some courage. Now, I'll tell you guys, we need some courage in our culture. It was not that long ago that little league ball teams did not practice on Sundays or play games on Sundays. And across the country, there's been a wave where that has changed. And even here in the Bible Belt, no longer can you sign your kid up for a team and know that there's not going to be a practice or a game on Sunday. Here's what I'd like to say. If all the Christians in Montgomery, Alabama had stood up at that moment and said, no, we're not doing that. We're not giving up the Lord's day just for sports. I'm telling you, we could have stopped it, but we did not have the courage to do it. And we're reaping the failure of that. You guys, when it comes to church, same thing is so true. Look, 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 let me illustrate something away. I love college football. Man, we had 850 men here celebrating college football and getting convicted Wednesday night. It was powerful. I love it. But I've, I've, I've lived long enough to watch this thing. It's take even just college. I'm not even talking about pro right now. I'm not talking about high school. I'm talking about college. Some of you people older than me, you can remember when there was a nine-game season. When I was a kid, it was a ten-game season. And then we needed a little bit more money to build our stadiums, and we started 11-game season. And about three years ago, we decided that still wasn't enough money. Let's have a 12-game season. And then if you had a 12-game season and you get up in a kickoff classic like Alabama and Auburn are this year, then you get to have a 13-game season. And then if you go to a bowl game, you get a 14-game season. And in a couple years when the new playoffs start, some teams are going to have 15-game seasons. You see what I'm saying? Now, is there anything wrong with that? I think Faulkner should have a 15-game season, all right? I mean, is there, is there anything wrong with it? No. But do you notice how busy it's made us? I don't know about you, but in the fall of the year, my Saturdays are dominated by college football. Because not only does my team have all those games, I can watch them every weekend. And not only that, but I've got football on from morning to evening that I can watch. And so if I'm not careful, man, I'm spending more time in my week feeding my football soul than I'm feeding my spiritual soul. Do you get what I'm saying? Now, let me contrast that. When I was growing up, I barely remember this. You could have revival at a church. You know how long revivals lasted in that day? Two weeks. 
And you know what? They had an evening service and a morning service. You know what? We, we got, that got crowded out. How many remember when we went to a week revival? And Sunday to Sunday. And then that got crowded out. We went Sunday to Friday. And then that got crowded out. We went Sunday to Wednesday. And then we went Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And now here is the truth. We couldn't even do it if we tried. Now, I'm, that's, that's, I, I think it's happened so innocently. Everything in life is more and more crowded except the things that have to do with God. Because those are the things I can cut in my life. But it's these other things, you know. I mean, it's just it's as crazy as something like a wedding. My goodness, when people get engaged now, it's crazy. The whole family has to show up for the engagement and give a party. And then you got to have ten showers. And then you can't just have a reception, you know, with some peanuts and cake. you got to serve... You got to serve a whole meal. I'm still broke. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) It's crazy. It's got out of control. And I could tell you almost every area of modern life. You tell me anything from TV to football to weddings that's been cut down. I'll tell you what's been cut down. God's been cut down. I'll tell you what's lost. The church is lost. And guys, because of that, our insides aren't getting filled. And we look all great on the outside and everything looks wonderful. But on the inside, we're dying spiritually. And some of us have got to have the clarity to see this, the courage to do. Let me give you another one. Clarity plus courage plus calendar. Write down calendar. Say it with me. Clarity, courage, calendar. It's not going to be real courage until you put it on your calendar. What can come first in your life? What are you going to work? See, the question is, what are you going to work everything else around? You've got to have courage. And that clarity plus courage plus calendar is going to lead you to simplify. And you can have that simple life where you pay more attention to the inside than the outside. More attention to your soul than your body. Let's close with one more scripture. I love this scripture. The apostle John is writing a friend of his named Gaius. I love what he says. Dear friend, I'm praying that all is well with you and that your body is as healthy as I know your soul is. That's the very opposite of us. We are a lot more concerned with the body than the soul. We we might, if we had to write this, we probably should write, I'm praying that your soul is as healthy as your body is. But, but, But here, this man had such a healthy inside spiritual life that Paul's able to write and go, you know what? You, your soul is so healthy and I want your body to be healthy too. I'm praying that your body can be as healthy as your soul. I asked you this morning, have you neglected your soul? I ask you today, maybe you didn't even mean it. You love Jesus. You want to live for him. But the, the crowdedness of modern life, it's just pushed him off the stage. Today, I ask you, how is it with your soul? That's an uncomfortable question. But let me tell you this. Either you're going to answer that question right now, or one day you're going to be forced to answer it. I don't know about you, but I recognize during this time 
that I put too much emphasis on success, too much emphasis on ambition, too much emphasis on some things that really should not mean as much to me as they should. And what I need to do is go, you know what? What most important is what happens in my soul. And maybe some of you in this message, I don't care if you're sitting up top and you got to walk down these stairs or you're sitting down here, you've recognized that today in your life. And you are ready to come on and get your soul in order. Maybe it's time to go, you know what? I paid so much attention to my body. If I would pay half as much attention to my soul as my body, man, I would be spiritually healthy. So today, if you're hurting, today I'm asking, I'm asking today that we hear some prayer requests about our spirits, about our soul, about our spiritual life. So before you leave here, we can do the most powerful thing that we're going to do here this morning. We can get on our knees and ask God to begin to fill our souls How is it with your soul today?